You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and I'm also CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. Regular listeners will know that I usually co-host this podcast every week with my partner in crime, the lovely Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate. Her latest book is The Firestar of Maven and Reeve Mystery. But I am without the wonderful Alison in this in-between episode. She's busy doing authory things. So we've received so much feedback from listeners that they can't wait for the new episode to drop each week. And if you're hanging for that, stay tuned. The regular episode is going to be released very soon. But in the meantime... We're entertaining you with these story sessions where we read, or in this week's episode, the author reads the first chapter or prologue from a book that we recommend. You can sample it while you're doing the laundry or walking the dog or driving the car. And if you're not comfortable standing in the bookshop reading the first chapter of a book to decide whether or not you'll get into it, this is us bringing the bookshop to you. This week, we've chosen The Champagne War by Fiona McIntosh. This is a stunning book which transports readers to the Champagne vineyards of France during World War I, and it weaves together tales of loss, love, strength, and endurance. When we think of war stories, we think of men fighting each other on the front, but the Champagne War shows that there were many other battles taking place, as women and children fought to keep life going at home as well as their own emotional and psychological battles. Here's the blurb from the book. In the summer of 1914, vigneron Jérôme Meyer heads off to war, certain he'll be home by Christmas. His new bride, Sophie Deloche, a fifth-generation champenois, is determined to ensure the forthcoming vintages will be testament to their love and the power of the people of Epinay, especially its strong women who have elevated champagne to favourite beverage of the rich and royal worldwide. But as the years drag on, authorities advise that Jerome is missing, considered dead. Meanwhile, British Captain Charles Nash, a brilliant marksman, is seen by his men as a hero, but soon comes to feel that he'd rather die himself than take another life. When he's injured, he's brought to the Champagne Cellars in Rance, where Sophie has set up an underground hospital, and later to her mansion house in Ypernay, now a retreat for the wounded. As Sophie struggles with strong feelings for her patient, she also battles to procure the sugar she needs for her 1918 vintage and attracts sinister advances from her brother-in-law. However, nothing can prepare her for the ultimate battle of the heart. When Jerome's blood-stained jacket and identification papers are found in Belgium and her hopes of ever seeing her husband alive again are reignited. From the killing fields of Ypres to the sun-kissed vineyards of southern France, the Champagne War is a heart-stopping adventure about the true power of love and hope to light the way during war. All right, so fans of Fiona's historical fiction are going to adore this book, and I know that she's going to win over even more fans. We actually spoke to Fiona back in episode 284, so if you want to hear more about her writing process and her books, you can download the episode from writerscentre.com.au or your favourite podcast app. And of course, as a special treat, Fiona is reading this for you herself. So here's the prologue of The Champagne War by Fiona McIntosh. 
Hello everyone, this is Fiona McIntosh and I've been asked to read you the opening to my new book which is called The Champagne War. It's available now. Um, There's quite a long prologue so I might read you around half of it and I hope you enjoy this. As the new year of 1910 moved closer to its second month, the world marvelled that there had been so few deaths in Paris when the River Seine rose more than eight metres and flooded the city. The water didn't burst the banks as many presumed. Instead, it took a more sinister path, rising up through the subway system and overflowing through sewers and any tunnel that its liquid tendrils could discover. Mother Nature, in her stealth, brought the city to its knees and covered its homes with her waters. And yet she had warned them, Winter rainfall had been much higher than usual and other rivers were showing signs of breach. Makeshift bridges had to be built to allow people to move around Paris and some chose to row up and down its great avenues, even the Champs-Élysées. The atmosphere in the city felt almost carnivalesque. The scenes described and photographed for the rest of the world were surreal. In its gleeful rush to the sea, the River Seine took with it a restless highway of trees, furniture and shop fronts amid a parade of possessions and the carcasses of animals caught unawares. It also took three people from the same family with the surname de Lancray. Sophie, its one member left behind, busy in Epinay while her family was in Paris, and furiously regretting a chance to visit her favourite place on earth, the Opera Garnier. These days never chose to recall the winter of 1910. Her mind, however, sometimes walked where her thoughts didn't want to travel. It was impossible to clean away her sorrow in the same way Paris had cleaned itself of the flood's repercussions. It had been four years of sadness since learning that her parents had been hauled dead from the muddy waters, but her brother a gift from heaven, as her mother had called him, because she'd delivered him in her early forties, had vanished into the swirling depths, never to be recovered. The passing of his life was a tiny event among the broadening drama as more than 200,000 Parisians were made homeless over the day of the deluge. She'd never discovered what had actually happened to put her three beloveds in that muddy water, but she had to presume 10-year-old Olivier had perhaps fallen into the water and her father had leapt in to rescue him. Presumably her mother had tried to help and they'd all perished with the ferocity of that water. None could swim, so their deaths she knew would have been panicked, but she hoped swift. The horror taunted her for long winters of loneliness until the bright-natured vigneron Jérôme Mayer caught her elbow as she stumbled and changed her life as swiftly as the flood had changed her families. They'd only met by chance, for although their fathers knew each other, the children's lives had never intersected. He'd been born in Avise, about seven and a half miles from where she had been born and raised in Epinay. Four years after her father's death, she received a message from the elder brother, Louis Mir, who wanted to discuss with the Champagne House a new technique the family was trialling, for winter pruning. She noted Mayer's surprised expression, soon dissolving into a sardonic smile that the daughter had kept the appointment booked with senior winemaker Etienne Dorimus. Mayer proceeded to give her a tour of their chateau, 
not that she had come for that reason. As he did his best to impress upon her through his boastful facts about which king had slept in which wing down the centuries and in which room Napoleon had presented Josephine with the rose and violet-scented gloves he had crafted for her by House Gallimard in Grasse, she realised how thoroughly bored she was by the somewhat paunchy and flamboyant mayor. He had ten years on her at least, and she noted, as he took the liberty of pressing gently on her back to guide her through a doorway, that his hands were small and well manicured. Would he even know what a vineyard looked like? Ah, now, my dear, do you know what this is? Sophie wanted to cut him a withering look and explain that not only could she not know, she certainly couldn't guess, and most of all, that she was entirely uninterested to know. But that would be impolite. And this was business. Instead, she smiled her query, forbidding herself to speak. He carried on as though the question was rhetorical. This is where Victor Hugo, when he regularly visited my forebears, liked to write from. He was born but three or so hours from here at Besançon, near the Swiss border, he continued. His lightly pitched voice sounded like it enjoyed whispers and gossip. I'm told he worshipped the light in this room. I rather like to think he might have penned some of the hunchback of Notre Dame here, perhaps been vaguely inspired by our, our own cathedral at Reims. What a pompous ass he was. She couldn't wait to get away from this ghastly fellow. But diplomacy rode her shoulder and warned her that she needed his grapes, which were unrivaled for quality. Now, my dear, do you believe in first impressions? She looked back at him baffled. I do, she said, again forbidding the next truth, which was desperate to come out from escaping. Oh, I do too, he said, and licked his lips, which he tended to suck on, so they appeared redder than they should. And my first impression is that you are a woman of intellect and motivation. You've mentioned opera. Only the truly intelligent understand it. And yet opera isn't about intellect. I like to think it's all about the emotional... He cut blithely across her remark without even apology, as though he hadn't heard her beginning to respond to his crass idea or didn't care. I should like to escort you to the opera one day, my dear. In fact, let me be transparent in these trying times for you and for your champagne house. I should like to escort you to many fine establishments. I feel I can offer you what you most need. His pudgy smile made her shudder inwardly. And what is that, Monsieur Mir? She wanted to hear it, hear him say it. He considered his words, chose one. Tethering he replied, with a slight lift of an eyebrow that looked like a caterpillar moving in a new direction. Her private shudder turned to revulsion. Of all the words! Uh, Monsieur Mayor, I... He raised the hand of hers she wanted him to let go of more than a minute ago, held it up, and first sniffed it, making a sighing sound before he kissed it. Slightly wet ruby lips lingered far too long on her skin, leaving it damp as he pulled away. Call me Louis, please, he urged. We're friends now, and no doubt can be more. We must protect what our two families have built. Our fathers have always been close, and their children should cleave to that bond, especially now that your poor dear parents have passed. Rest their blessed souls. 
revolted, she wanted to wipe her hand against her skirts. But instead, she gave a nervous laugh. Uh, Louis, what about the vineyards? I think it's important that they were interrupted by the hectic arrival of a tall man pulling off a cap. His broad face was displaying earnest apology over the panting of someone who had clearly been running. His voice was loud, his huge hands were grubby, and his gaze shifted from Louis to lock onto her from beneath symmetrical heavy eyebrows. If the touch of Louis felt wet, then this man's eyes seemed to scorch her skin as he landed his attention wholly upon her. He was unshaven and didn't seem to care much about his dishevelment. Extending a hand, he wiped on his stained work trousers as if echoing her own thought of a heartbeat ago. I'm sorry I'm late. Louis sent a messenger to fetch me. She stared at him baffled but intrigued. Who are you? He laughed loud and free. Apologies, Mademoiselle Delancre, as well as being an idiot and late. I am also Jérôme Maire, brother to Louis here. My stepbrother has tested my patience with his tardiness since he was born, my dear. She blinked, trying to catch up. Different mothers, Jerome explained gently. But I don't bother with the remove. Louis and I are brothers as far as I'm concerned. We share everything. She looked back at Louis and doubted he felt the same. My mother died as I was born. Jerome's mother raised us. He tried to disguise it in a matter-of-fact tone, but she heard the regret. Ah, she said, dawning. I had no idea. I'm sorry you lost your mother at such a tender age. Louis nodded and continued, seemingly unmoved. I've asked Jerome to take you around the vineyards and show you what our family wishes to do with the vines. Jerome grinned at her. I hope that suits, mademoiselle. What luck! Perfectly, she replied, as crisp as she dared, delighted to escape the presumptuous elder brother. Shall we head out now? He bowed, as if he was hers to command. She could smell the scents of the land emanating from him, earthy and leafy, his skin slightly shiny from toil rather than lip-licking. I've had a spread put out in the morning room, Louis reminded them. That's Victor's room, he added, with a narrow smile that fought its way through his pale, fleshy face. Do join us later, he urged. You and I have so much to discuss, Mademoiselle Delancre. It took all of her resolve to give him a smile that was not a rebuke, but hardly agreement before she followed the bold stride of the brother as he led her out of the chateau into the fresh, bright air of the vineyards, his vineyards. Louis owns the house, I own the vineyards. That's the agreement. We share the spoils. She hadn't asked him to explain, but she was grateful for his openness. That's very uh, brotherly. He gave her a sideways grin. We couldn't be more different, I know. She sighed her relief at his remark. I would never pick you as brothers. Where do you connect? Sophie watched him frown and immediately regretted her boldness. Oh, you must forgive me. I should not have spoken out of turn. You didn't, he laughed, sounding carefree. I have nothing in common with Louis other than our father. And we both did love him enormously. My mother tried to love Louis, and I think they were close enough until I came along. He shrugged. Blood without, they say. He continued, sounding guilty. I was her true son. I suppose she couldn't hide that. Do you get on? He shook his head. No, but I love him as a brother. I know that sounds odd to love even when we aren't good friends. 
I stay out of his way. I work the vineyards and I'm happy out here. Louis likes to be in Reims or Paris at parties and social events. He comes to Avis mostly to check the books or to entertain when he needs to impress someone. He picked off a leaf from the closest vine. Someone like you, he added. Me? He doesn't know me. He nodded, turning serious. He does. Since we heard about your father and Louis, he has a plan. She made the leap as fast as wildfire. Oh, no. Sophie heard the rasp of his beard as he scratched his face. He sees it as the perfect blend of two families begging to be bonded through marriage. You make champagne, he has grapes. It was her turn to fix him with a firm gaze. Except the vines are yours. Historically, the Mayer family had made their money from many crops, but it was the grape in particular they excelled at. The three famous women of the Epinay region, Meunier, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, were their specialty. But Chardonnay was Jerome's. He met her look with an amused one that gave the impression of being conspiratorial. I can refuse to grow them for you. Would that help? She poked the air towards him. I am not going to marry Louis, not if he were the last man on earth, not if he offered me the last grape on his land. Jerome let out a wild, generous explosion of laughter. I believe you, mademoiselle, but I thought it only fair to let you in on my brother's grand scheme. He ran his hand through thick hair that showed a reddish tinge in the sunlight, which had bronzed his skills his skin, so every laughter line, of which there were plenty, seemed more clearly etched. She recalled how pale his brother's was, and how few creases there were in that smooth skin that she might attribute to the unreserved joy of laughing. The younger man was broad where his brother was simply enlarged from indulgence. Jerome was hard and muscled from his efforts in the fields, while Louis was soft, his skin plump from the good life and little exertion. Is everything all right? he asked, noting how she watched him. Everything is suddenly right, she answered more cryptically than she had intended, noting his hooded gaze, which tried so hard to hide the laughing eyes, and how it narrowed further in query. Show me more of your vines and your plans. Let us see how you and I can work together. If laughter had been the spark, then their shared fascination for Chardonnay was the vital breakthrough. Sophie discovered that afternoon how much she enjoyed his manner of telling her a story about his vines. She knew most of what there was to know about the life cycle of the vineyard, but the way Jerome Mayer described what he was doing in his rows of vines and why charmed her. He spoke about his vines like they were his children and his respect and love for the land, the flavor it gave to his precious charges, delighted Sophie. I wanted to show Etienne how I would be giving a more vigorous pruning this year. I felt it respectful to demonstrate for him what I was doing and explain my reasons, especially as my father, if he were alive, would likely not agree with my actions, not after the catastrophe of the disease that has traumatized France's vines. Sophie nodded. So you're a renegade, Monsieur Mayer, he grinned. I'm sure you have your own innovations in mind. I do, she returned the smile with one that was more secretive. As we are both family heirs, we must be progressive and not frightened to take risks. Santé to that. However, am I to gather that this is a warning we may not get the yield we are used to from your vineyards this year? 
Yes. She appreciated his candour. Perhaps not as much as usual, but by, let's say, the 1915 harvest, I am prepared to gamble all I have that we will be celebrating one of our best yields, and I believe with all my heart that Delancre will proudly offer one of your finest vintages ever. The grapes will be that good. He put his hand on his heart and promised, his eyes twinkling with amusement, and she felt a genuine vibration of romantic interest that she had not felt for any man before. There had been many who had tried to capture her attention, but until now she'd felt almost ashamed at her lack of interest. Her mother had counselled her against pushing so many fine young men away. They're all too earnest, too polished, too sophisticated, Sophie had explained. Her mother had sighed that anyone should complain about such commendable qualities. I want someone who makes me laugh. I want someone who is different to me, not from another winemaking family, someone who is perhaps my opposite. If her parents had felt any despair, they hadn't shown it. But even she had known that turning 25 without any leanings towards an engagement was causing tongues to gossip. And now, without warning, a grape grower had caught her attention. She'd read romantic novels and wondered at the notion of one's heart skipping a beat, a hitch in the breath, one's chest feeling tight when the attraction was strong. They had struck her as cliched. But to be experiencing all three symptoms both horrified and amused her. So they were not only the dreamings of novelists, these were real experiences. And as that dawning struck, she stumbled in the vineyard. Jerome caught her elbow just as she lost her footing, and in that moment, as she looked up into his open, easily red face, she knew this tall, broad-shouldered man with his rough stubble of growth, unruly hair, and flat cloth cap, worn rakishly, was the brother she intended to marry. As it turned out, his heart and breath were skipping and jumping in tandem with hers, and later that day, as he helped her into her family's car, he kissed her hand and looked into her eyes in such a way that they both knew something special had erupted between them. Are you sure you won't stay for Louis' spread? She grinned at how he'd loaded the word. Will you explain that I had stayed longer in the fields than I intended and was feeling a little weary? Of course. Will you visit again? She shook her head. I trust you, Jerome, and I do not want to run into your brother if I can help it. Why don't you come to Epinay? Mention that I would like you to visit the cellars. She tried to sound jaunty when all she wanted to do was stay longer and have those large working hands around her waist pulling her close. I shall, he shrugged. Tomorrow? Sophie laughed. Perfect. Come alone. Stay for dinner. He stayed the night and from there on he barely left her side. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, but I know that that um, particular reading, which is the first half of the prologue, sounds like a thoroughly romantic opening, and you could be forgiven for thinking that this story was going to be all light and bright and love-filled. Please be warned, um, it's not. There, That is part of the counterbalance for what's coming ahead it will turn into quite a dark story for a while. Um, there's a lot of sadness and, um, you know, all of the main characters are in a state of loneliness and melancholy. But there is bright light and joy and fizz through the champagne 
um, and there's plenty to look forward to. But I needed that opening to just feel uplifting before I start to throw you into the trenches and the and World War One, which is what all three characters are, lead characters are enmeshed in. So I hope you'll um, enjoy this story. It's it's been uh, hard work to write it, a pleasure to write it, but it certainly claimed a big chunk of my life um, and for much longer than usual. So I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the challenge it put me through and that I was able to rise to it. And I, I hope it's um, one of those books that will stand out in your mind for 2020. Um, and thank you very much for listening to me read part of the prologue. I've never done this before, so I'm very hopeful it comes out all right at the other end. And all my best to everyone. Stay safe, stay bright, stay happy, and keep reading. Thank you. Oh, Fiona, it turned out brilliantly. I think it's especially wonderful when an author reads their own story because you can really hear the, how they intended it to sound. And it was great to hear Fiona explain why she chose to open with such a bright and romantic prologue, even though, as she says, the story goes on to have darker moments. But there is always light and joy as well. Remember, as I said, we spoke to Fiona back in episode 264, if you want to have a listen to that, where she talks more about her writing process. If you're interested in learning how to craft your own powerful novel, check out our Novel Writing Essentials course. Over eight weeks, you'll learn everything you need to know to make your first steps to novel writing alongside your like-minded classmates and with the support of your experienced tutor. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Connect with us on social media at Writer Centre AU on Twitter and Instagram and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Both Alison and I will be back to our regular programming in your next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>